This is Chapter Seventeen of Following the Equator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following the Equator by Mark Twain. Chapter Seventeen: The British Empire, Its Exports and Imports, The Trade of Australia, To Adelaide, Broken Hill Silver Mine, A Roundabout Road, The Scrub and Its Possibilities for the Novelist, The Aboriginal Tracker, A Test Case. How does one cow-track differ from another? The English are mentioned in the Bible. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Puddenhead Wilson's New Calendar When we consider the immensity of the British Empire in territory, population, and trade, it requires a stern exercise of faith to believe in the figures which represent Australasia's contribution to the Empire's commercial grandeur as compared with the landed estate of the british empire the landed estate dominated by any other power except one russia is not very impressive for size my authorities make the british empire not much short of a fourth larger than the russian empire roughly proportioned if you will allow your entire hand to represent the british empire you may then cut off the fingers a trifle above the middle joint of the middle finger and what is left of the hand will represent russia the populations ruled by great britain and china are about the same four hundred million each no other power approaches these figures even russia is left far behind the population of australasia four million sinks into nothingness and is lost from sight in that british ocean of four hundred million yet the statistics indicate that it rises again and shows up very conspicuously when its share of the empire's commerce is the matter under consideration the value of england's annual exports and imports is stated at three billions of dollars new south wales blue book and it is claimed that more than one-tenth of this great aggregate is represented by australasia's exports to england and imports from england in addition to this australasia does a trade with countries other than england amounting to a hundred million dollars a year and a domestic intercolonial trade amounting to a hundred and fifty millions in round numbers the four million buy and sell about six hundred million dollars worth of goods a year it is claimed that about half of this represents commodities of australasian production the products exported annually by india are worth a trifle over five hundred million dollars now here are some faith-straining figures indian production three hundred million population five hundred million dollars australasian production four million population three hundred million dollars that is to say the product of the individual indian annually for export some whither is worth a dollar seventy-five that of the individual australasian for export some whither seventy-five dollars or to put it in another way the indian family of man and wife and three children sends away an annual result worth eight dollars and seventy-five cents while the australasian family sends away three hundred and seventy-five dollars worth there are trustworthy statistics furnished by sir richard temple and others which show that the individual indian's whole annual product both for export and home use is worth in gold only seven dollars and fifty cents or thirty seven dollars and fifty cents for the family aggregate 
ciphered out on a like ratio of multiplication, the Australasian family's aggregate production would be nearly $1,600. Truly nothing is so astonishing as figures, if they once get started. We left Melbourne by rail for Adelaide, the capital of the vast province of South Australia, a seventeen-hour excursion. On the train we found several Sydney friends, among them a judge who was going out on circuit, and was going to hold court at Broken Hill, where the celebrated silver mine is. It seemed a curious road to take to get to that region. Broken Hill is close to the western border of New South Wales, and Sydney is on the eastern border. A fairly straight line, seven hundred miles long, drawn westward from Sydney, would strike Broken Hill, just as a somewhat shorter one, drawn west from Boston, would strike Buffalo. The way the judge was traveling would carry him over two thousand miles by rail, he said, southwest from Sydney down to Melbourne, then northward up to Adelaide, and then a cant back northeastward and over the border into New South Wales once more, to Broken Hill. It was like going from Boston southwest to Richmond, Virginia, then northwest up to Erie, Pennsylvania, then a cant back northeast and over the border to Buffalo, New York. But the explanation was simple. Years ago the fabulously rich silver discovery at Broken Hill burst suddenly upon an unexpected world. Its stocks started at shillings, and went by leaps and bounds to the most fanciful figures. It was one of those cases where the cook puts a month's wages into shares, and comes next month, and buys your house at your own price, and moves into it herself, where the coachman takes a few shares, and next month sets up a bank, and where the common sailor invests the price of a spree, and next month buys out the steamship company and goes into business on his own hook. In a word, it was one of those excitements which bring multitudes of people to a common center with a rush, and whose needs must be supplied, and at once. Adelaide was close by. Sydney was far away. Adelaide threw a short railway across the border before Sydney had time to arrange for a long one. It was not worth while for Sydney to arrange at all. The whole vast trade profit of Broken Hill fell into Adelaide's hands irrevocably. New South Wales furnishes law for Broken Hill, and sends her judges two thousand miles, mainly through alien countries, to administer it, but Adelaide takes the dividends, and makes no moan. We started at four-twenty in the afternoon, and moved across level plains until night. In the morning we had a stretch of scrub country, the kind of thing which is so useful to the Australian novelist. In the scrub the hostile aboriginal lurks, and flits mysteriously about, slipping out from time to time to surprise and slaughter the settler, then slipping back again, and leaving no track that the white man can follow. In the scrub the novelist's heroine gets lost. Search fails of result. She wanders here and there, and finally sinks down exhausted and unconscious, and the searchers pass within a yard or two of her, not suspecting that she is near and by and by some rambler finds her bones, and the pathetic diary which she had scribbled with her failing hand and left behind. Nobody can find a lost heroine in the scrub but the aboriginal tracker, and he will not lend himself to the scheme if it will interfere with the novelist's plot. The scrub stretches miles and miles in all directions, 
and looks like a level roof of bush-tops without a break or a crack in it, as seamless as a blanket, to all appearance. One might as well walk under water and hope to guess out a route and stick to it, I should think. Yet it is claimed that the aboriginal tracker was able to hunt out people lost in the scrub, also in the bush, also in the desert, and even follow them over patches of bare rocks and over alluvial ground, which had to all appearance been washed clear of footprints. From reading Australian books and talking with the people, I became convinced that the aboriginal tracker's performances evince a craft, a penetration, a luminous sagacity, and a minuteness and accuracy of observation in the matter of detective work not found in nearly so remarkable a degree in any other people, white or colored. In an official account of the blacks of Australia, published by the government of Victoria, one reads that the aboriginal not only notices the faint marks left on the bark of a tree by the claws of a climbing opossum, but knows in some way or other whether the marks were made to-day or yesterday. And there is the case, on record, where A, a settler, makes a bet with B, that B may lose a cow as effectually as he can, and A will produce an aboriginal who will find her. B selects a cow, and lets the tracker see the cow's footprint. Then B put under guard. B then drives the cow a few miles over a course which drifts in all directions, and frequently doubles back upon itself, and he selects difficult ground all the time, and once or twice even drives the cow through herds of other cows, and mingles her tracks in the wide confusion of theirs. He finally brings his cow home, the aboriginal is set at liberty, and at once moves around in a great circle, examining all cow-tracks until he finds the one he is after, then sets off and follows it throughout its erratic course, and ultimately tracks it to the stable where B has hidden the cow. Now, wherein does one cow-track differ from another? There must be a difference, or the tracker could not have performed the feat. A difference minute, shadowy, and not detectable by you or me, or by the late Sherlock Holmes, and yet discernible by a member of a race charged by some people with occupying the bottom place in the gradations of human intelligence. End of chapter 17